Mzansi on SAFM. And a very good day to you, Mzansi, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Otherwise Talking Women on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Shadow Twala, Hazel Makuzeni is my producer, and Derek Fordyce is our technical producer for today. Our contact details are 0892-102010, email otherwise at safm.co.za, tweets at otherwise safm, or at Shadow Twala. Now, today uh, we speak to the founder and editor of Vanguard magazine, online magazine, Panasha Chigumadzi, about two articles in the magazine, In Search of the Carefree Black Girl, and Sarah Brightman, celebrating black women one stereotype at a time. And then Sonia Hise, the director of Innovative Edge, will talk to us about a 15 million rand fund that aims to inspire and enable creative ideas that can bring transformation in the inequality of early educational development among South African children. Uh, and then uh, there's an exhibition, a photographic exhibition, uh, to celebrate... Um, it, it celebrates uh, Universal Children's Day, which is tomorrow, also marking the 25th anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And we speak with Director, United Nations Information Centre in Pretoria, Helene Hoodle. But before that, our lunch bite for today, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. Otherwise, on SAFM. Panasha Chikumadzi is the founder and editor of Vanguard magazine. Panasha, welcome and thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much, Shada. S- tell me about these two stories you, mm-hmm. that you've highlighted in search of the carefree black girl. <laughs> um, I think it's been quite an interesting week, um, if we just go judging by social media for um, young black women and just seeing what are the topics that have been trending. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of them, the first one I think came on, well, it was released on Friday, but really a lot of the furor, if I will call it that, started on Monday um, when there was a critique of an article written by a U.S feminist magazine or publication called Jezebel about Sarah Bartman and called her the original booty queen, which wow. is really um, it was in response to the Kim Kardashian um, picture of, you know, um, her that one right and i think part of the art of the critique of this was it, she was depicted as having had real agency and consented to her being sold as a sex worker and only wanting to return when she'd gotten the worst that she the wealth that she was going to get from you know entertaining um these european audi- audiences mm. um and there was this just you know it really was a lot of upset caused about the way in which and um, this black woman was depicted, particularly someone who's almost seen as a touchstone for um, images and representations of black women. And it's a particularly um, burdened figure that we see in, in, in Sarah Bartman. Um, it's one of disempowerment. It's one of being an over six um, black woman. You know, the Venus Hottentot, all of those stereotypes mm. um, are captured um, within the image of Sarah Bartman. And then a couple of days later, then we see... Um, pictures from the wedding of Solange Knowles, who, for those who aren't as familiar with her, um, she's the sister of Beyonce, um, mm-hmm. but she's also a singer and musician in her own right, um, and she's been pretty, um, it, it, it was quite amazing to see how much joy, if I can call it that, that that image of her wedding um, elicited from a lot of us, so in the sense that she had a big afro, um, she wore a jumpsuit, her husband, her and her husband um, drove in well, 
drove, they cycled in cycles to um, their wedding. Um, it was just so different. Mm-hmm. And this is an image, particularly because, um, you know, Solange is a single mother. Um, she has a 10-year-old son. And, you know, here she was finding love, which you're not supposed to in many of our cultures. She's mm-hmm. supposed to be seen as damaged goods. Mm-hmm. But here she was finding love on her own terms, um, doing things completely differently. And I think just juxtaposing those two images has been quite interesting for us to say, you know, there's one image of a burdened black woman and it's been an image created and projected on her. Um, whereas we look at the image of Solange, to some extent, I think, or a great extent, she has a lot more control of her image and what that has meant. And I think a lot of us, particularly those who might identify as black feminists, we often like to be very reactionary and speak about what we don't want to see um, of ourselves, but we don't really talk about what kind of images do we want to see and what are the other ways of being if it's not sort of um, folding to a very Western or patriarchal view of ourselves. And I think Solange in some sense has shown us another image of what we can be as black women when we determine how we want to live. Do you know, I, as, as you talk to me, I'm, I'm thinking about people who observe us as black women. Yes. Um, <laughs> Have 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 a have an an expression that that may come from how they were informed, how you meet the black mm-hmm. woman in the first mm-hmm. place, but yes. also I think we are totally responsible for the way we 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 hold ourselves in in and how we project ourselves to other people. Who takes responsibility in how we mm-hmm. are depicted by others, um, and 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 the things they say about us? Is sure. it is it us? telling our stories ourselves? Do we write our own stories so that nobody writes our history? Who takes responsibility? I think increasingly a lot of us, uh, particularly young black females, are just saying, well, we're not expecting anything anymore. So for myself, when I heard about that article, I simply rolled my eyes and continued because I I no longer expect um, the accurate images or nuanced images from um, non-black females mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so anyone who's not a black woman, I don't expect um, a, an accurate image anymore. And that just causes me a lot more um, sanity for my own, <laughs> for myself. Well, this is it. I mean, um, and it, what then we've, you know, sort of taken it upon ourselves to say, right, what can we do? And let's create our own images as opposed to being as reactionary. Mm-hmm. That said, part of the critique of that article saying that Sarah Bartman was an agent and just like the critiques of, you know, Kim Kardashian being um, an agent in what she does, you're an agent within a system, mm. um, you know, there's, those are rational economic choices that you're making that, right, as a woman, um, I've got XYZ skills or assets in this, in this market. What mm-hmm. can I make money off of? And that, so there is a system. So I don't think that we can disregard there's a system that we work within that dictates that you need to do certain things. So, for example, very practically speaking, not all black women, for example, can be in a place where they can have their natural hair. Um, you know, often I think 40 kids in the Western Cape were to have been sent home this year alone um, mm. because of their hair. Um, was it dreadlocks? Because of their dreadlocks, mm-hmm. you know, many, um, you know, sort of um, school codes of conduct have said, you know, no exotic hairstyles, including afros. So there is a system Afro that we work with. <laughs> afros are exotic, I tell you, right? Um, afros that grows out of my head is, is an exotic hairstyle. So there wow. is a system that we work with. And I mean, often having relaxed hair, for example, and I'm just using hair as a touch point, means social mobility, dressing in a particular way. African print, for example, is not necessarily something that all workplaces will allow us to, to 
to um, to dress in, you you might not be um, told not to wear it, but you will be penalized in some other ways. You mm. might not be invited to that meeting. You mm. might not be invited to you know present to the board, whatever it is. And I think that let's not disregard that there is a system that we're working within. But those of us who have the access to our own platforms, those of us who have the means to predict present ourselves um, need to do a lot more and I mean the last point I also make is that just because it's a black woman presenting us doesn't always mean it's going to be um, one that's free of patriarchy or racism. I think I was looking at Job Magazine this week and I was seeing the terrible sort of headlines about Kelly um, and Senzo and just the very misogynistic kinds of um, slogans that are just put there, you know, mm-hmm. to calling calling people Nazis, calling people all kinds of terrible things, but yet it's women who are behind some of these things. Mm-hmm. So it's... It, it's it's called on a lot of decolonization of our minds to say that right had it not been for all of these things how would we present ourselves um and that's why i liked the image of solange so much because it's saying hey this is actually an image of what we might be aspiring to or the kind of things that we might aspire to um if we are to be a lot more liberated about how we look at ourselves i think the other question is what informs that system that that we work yes. within you know how can we change that information? Because if the system mm-hmm. is set on on uh, how we've projected ourselves mm-hmm. in the past, we need to reinform and re-educate whoever yes. puts that system in place. Yeah, no, definitely. I think for me, my own effort starts with myself and those around me. So again, I always say I'm I'm really not interested. I'm not surprised that a Jezebel will do what they did, mm-hmm. um, for example. Um, and I, like I said, I don't expect it anymore. So if I hear of a Bob Geldof, for example, doing another silly song, um, do they have Christmas in Africa? I no longer expect him to do right by me anymore. Mm-hmm. And it means that let's start having these conversations and saying, I don't have the answers, but it's been asking myself really if I was, and I mean, often I'll look at a woman and I'll make a very silly remark in my head and I'll think, mm, is, is that a comment made because she's a woman mm. and you're coming from a patriarchal point of view or is this because, you know, it's based on the merits of the case and that sort of thing. So I think it starts with awareness, number one. Naming these things is important. Knowing what are the systems that we work within. Of course, we look very, what bell hooks would call white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, which typically mean sort of a western um, sort of paradigm very much about capitalism making money first um, and patriarchal of course you know men on top that sort of thing and it's then starting to say to us right now that we know that those are the systems that we work within let's think about our everyday actions when I for example as a vanguard editor write a headline and exa- for example yesterday I was saying to a friend of mine um, oh I'm going to act so ghetto on you and I'm going to come and beat you up about whatever it was that you were going to do and she said why would you say why why is ghettoness associated with being rowdy and those kind of things? Mm. So we constantly need to check ourselves. It's not that some of us have the answers and we're just waiting for everyone else to trip up. We all are in this mess and play up to a system. But I think it's, it's more about, for us, it's about being a little bit less reactionary and seeking out what is the positive, what are the things that we would like to aspire to as, a, as opposed to just what are the things we'd like to aspire against. Mm. I like the fact that you've opened up that discussion on your magazine mm-hmm. and hopefully um, we check ourselves more often uh, than, and, and, and know that someone is watching out there and, <laughs> and people are making, uh, are creating new images, some kind of curry, caricature uh, around us and how, how we behave. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad Vanguard is there and, and, and doing the right thing. Thank you so much for, for Thank you so much, Shadow, for your time. Thank you, Panasha.
wow, um, visit that, that website. It's vanguardmagazine.co.za. And uh, the, you, you may tweet them as well uh, at Panasha Chigumadzi. Um, but I think it's important that all of us start having these conversations amongst ourselves. We'll take a little break. When we come back, uh, we talk about the the innovation the innovation edge with Sonia Gise. Otherwise, on SAFM. Okay, um, my next guest is going to talk to us about this new innovation fund to catalyze change in early learning in South Africa. So they ask questions like, do you have a bold idea that can change the future of young children in South Africa? Do you need the funding to turn it into reality? Uh, and I think Sonia Giza is going to be answering these questions for us. She's the director of Innovation, Innovation Edge. Hello, Sonia. Hello, hi. Hello to the listeners. Hello, thank you for joining us. Sonia, just unpack this for us. Oops, oops, oops. I've, I've lost Sonia. Okay, we'll we'll try and get her back. Um, but it, apparently it is, uh, the EDGE is part of a 90 million rand program called Ilifa Labandwana. It was launched through a multi-donor consortium, including the Ilifa funding partners, which is the Murray Trust, the First Rand Foundation, Elma Foundation, UBS Optimus Foundation, and, and the Omedia Network. And now they want to invite people from different sectors to share their ideas on how this challenge can be addressed. Uh, and they, they say, if you have a bold idea with the potential for big impact on the development of young children, then they want to hear from you. I'm hoping that Sonia can, can unpack it for us. And, uh, inspire us uh, with 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 more information sonia are you back with me yes i'm sorry about that i'm N- not sure what happened no no problem at all uh, this uh, telephones you, you can't do anything with with them <laughs> now this sounds like a very innovative idea the innovation fund uh, fund tell us about about it so um the innovation edge was was set up by a group of donors mm. who had a shared interest and concern about education in south africa and the idea was to try and create a fund that supports uh, potential game changers in early learning so we're looking at the the period from from birth really to the age of six years when a lot of brain development happens and mm. we know that the kind of stimulation that children get at that age really determines their performance at school and in life. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to create a fund that could support people who had great ideas that they would really like to test, ideas that could uh, potentially be scaled in in marginalized communities. Now, how do you identify these these children between birth and six years? I mean, how how do you find them? Well, our, our job is really to find the ideas. So, so we're looking for people who can come forward with ideas. Uh-huh. We know we know where the under-resourced communities are. You know, mm. we can go by, by by national survey data. We know in the areas where children are are most deprived of, of sort of basic services and care and stimulation. We know, for example, where children are performing poorly in school. So those are the kind of areas where we'd be targeting young children. But our real challenge is to find those great ideas. Okay, so how do people bring that? So you really are the platform that will test the idea and see if it's feasible enough and then fund it. Exactly. So our, the role that we play is to, is to help people to, to generate these ideas. We bring people together who come from very different uh, sectors with very different interests. We put them in the same space. We have brainstorming sessions to try and make sort of unusual connections. We also just invite people out there who may already have an idea to come forward and share their idea. There's an, an online platform or um, 
they can communicate with us directly. And the idea is really to find ideas that have real potential mm-hmm. and then to support people with finances. We give up to a million rand per grant mm-hmm. um, uh, for organizations that we feel have really great ideas. And we provide uh, technical support and we provide um, evaluation. And those ideas that really are able to achieve significant change in, in young children's we then work with to support scale-up. Now, are you looking for any particular, should they have any particular skills, for instance, should they come from a teaching background? Uh, what, what sort of skill sets are you looking for? Well, this is, this is where we think that real innovation will come in, is by bringing people into the space who don't necessarily come from the space. Mm-hmm. So people who might be really doing really creative things in the, in the in advertising or communication or IT, um, people who are doing you know creative things in, in engineering or architecture. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that would come together with people who who are doing creative things within within early childhood development space. But this is where we're finding the the beginnings of the real sparks of innovation. So we we wanting to appeal to a much broader audience than the the usual suspects in in early learning. Hmm. Very interesting. So how do people uh, get to connect with you about their ideas? And is there an opening date or is there a closing date? How does it work? So we've just launched. Um, it's a very new initiative, although the people who are running the initiative have been involved in the sector for many years. Um, the applications, it's an open application process, mm-hmm. so people can apply at any stage. It will be an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. And we wanting to keep the, the barriers to entry as low as possible. So mm-hmm. if you have a great idea, but you don't think you have the capacity or the skills to implement it, we'd still like to hear that idea, and we can potentially partner you with someone who might be able to support implementation. People can contact us directly on my email address. I can give you all of these contact details. They can go onto our website. There's an online application process, which is a very simple form. It's got about 13 questions, um, and it's just an initial assessment to see whether it's an idea that we think may be viable. We also have an online innovation exchange where people can post ideas, and then other people from anywhere in the world can comment on or add to those ideas. I was going to ask you if you've looked at at, uh, similar ideas across the world to see if anyone is doing anything uh, equally equally educational. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we draw from, you know, we, we're drawing from, from academic research. We're drawing from practice around the world. We have an international advisory group, which mm. is made up of representatives of various sectors working internationally. Um, we have our, our donors on international group and they participate. So this is very much, uh, we're wanting to draw ideas from anywhere and things that have been tried in, in other spaces. But, um, it needs to be something that's implemented in South Africa. So that's mm-hmm. our geographical area of focus for implementation. Fantastic. So give us your email address. It's Sonia, S-O-N-J-A, mm-hmm. at innovationedge.org.za. Mm-hmm. And our website is www.innovationedge.org.za. Fantastic. And, and both, both those will, should be able to assist people with more information. Absolutely. The website has several links to various things. They can subscribe to our updates. They can apply online. They can join, comment on our blog, or they can. Our contact details are also on the website. Are you on Twitter? Yes, we're on Twitter as well. As Innovation, Innovation Edge. Innovation Edge One. Innovation Edge One. Yeah, the number one. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sonia. Okay. Bye bye. Those details again. It's Sonia. S O N J A at innovationedge.org.za and the website is also www.innovationedge.org.za Otherwise, on SAFM. Now, 
Helene Hoodle is the Director of the United Nations Information Centre in Pretoria and she joins me now to talk to us about the Children of War Broken Childhood Exhibition that is um, going to mark the Universal Children's Day and also marks the 25th anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Helene, hello, welcome. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon to you. Um, what is the state of our children now that we we marking this day tomorrow? Uh, well, uh, tomorrow, uh, as as you mentioned, is Universal Children's Day, but it also marks the 25th anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, mm-hmm. and a lot, and which, um, as you may know, is the most widely ratified international human rights treaty in history. It uh, focuses on children solely, and it has changed the way children are viewed and treated around the world. It means that uh, they are seen as human beings uh, with their own sets of rights and not just as passive objectives of care and charity. And there has been significant improvement in these 25 years. Uh, there's lots to celebrate. There has been uh, decline in infant mortality. Mm-hmm. There has been an increase in the enrollment of children in schools. Um, and uh, there has been, uh, of course, a reduction in the, in the number of people living in poverty. Um, uh, also access to sanitation, to water, a decrease in child labor. Uh, so there has been significant progress. But there are still lots of challenges. Mm, mm. I, I, I know that because the, the most vulnerable, obviously, are, are, are children who live in, live in war-torn areas. Exactly. Exactly. And this is precisely uh, the, the point of this exhibit that we are opening tomorrow at Constitution Hill in Johannesburg, together with the High Commission of Canada mm-hmm. and a Constitution Hill. Um, and it's basically to raise awareness of the problem of children affected by war, many of whom are actually child soldiers, as we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 300,000 300, children, these are boys and girls, mm-hmm. are affected and under the age of 18, that they are involved in conflicts around the world. They can be combatants. Um, and you know some of the weapons today are light. They can be carried easily by children. Mm. Often they are messengers. They have to cook. They are porters. Mm. They are small. They can quickly disappear. And often they are also forced into sexual services. Mm. Uh, sometimes even they are used as suicide bombers. Um, so this is a, a tremendous concern to... Uh, us as the United Nations, but of course also to our partners uh, that are co-sponsoring this exhibit, a photographic exhibit. Hmm. So how do we, um, I mean, you know, all of us should be should be alarmed at the numbers you've just given, you know, of children who are particularly vulnerable. Uh, and, and I know this exhibition is, is hopefully going to educate a lot of us, you know, about this phenomenon of our children and the way they live, especially in the countries uh, that are war-torn. But what do we do except for just gasp, you know? Uh, can we do more? Is, is, there, is there a call for us to do anything? 
Yes, um, just maybe to give you a little background, and this is really how the United Nations work. First, we need to know about the problem. You know, uh, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, we didn't really know much about the issue of child soldiers, mm -hmm. just like we didn't know about landmines. Uh, so it was um, over 20 years ago, it was actually Grasa uh, Machel who was tasked with preparing the first report on children in armed conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, re a request by the United Nations General Assembly. And this report was really groundbreaking because it, it led to an awareness of the challenges that exist. You know, some of these numbers, as you can imagine, are difficult to even find out, but mm. we do have these estimates. And this, uh, this report really is, was used as a foundation for advocacy and child protection. And it led to the appointment of a UN special representative of the UN Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict. Mm. And, you know, with this awareness, there have been different mechanisms and tools put in place. One of it is the special representative who is advocating on behalf of, this, of, of children in armed conflict. But very recently, just uh, earlier this year, the special representative, together with UNICEF, launched a campaign called Children, Not Soldiers, mm -hmm. uh, to really try to galvanize support to end, but also to prevent the new recruitment and use of children uh, by national security forces in the next two years. So there is a, a whole push now. It has, as I said, for the last 20 years, there has been a lot of effort and attention given and, and actions taken. But this is now uh, the latest push. And um, what's happening, there have been quite a few countries have made changes in the way they are, they are working uh, with children, the legislation, the security council even has endorsed this campaign earlier this year, the UN Security Council. Countries have signed up to an action plan mm -hmm. earlier this year, quite a number of countries. Uh, and uh, uh, roadmaps, uh, some countries have named an advisor on addressing sexual and, and violence and child recruitment. Uh, so there has been a lot of uh, mobilization, so to say. and. The UN, especially the special representatives and UNICEF and many NGO partners are all working, you know, to try to tackle this issue. Mm. Uh, not just when it comes, of course, to the armed forces <coughs> of government, but also, <coughs> sorry, to, to ensure that rebel forces are not recruiting children. Mm -hmm. so the support just so that you, that uh, the support that is provided is techni technical expertise, but also to find out, you know, what are the challenges in, in implementing this action plan and whether additional, perhaps additional resources are needed on the ground. Mm -hmm. And is this, is, this, is this plan available for all of us to, to familiarize ourselves with? Is yes, yes. Uh, it's all on, uh, uh, available on the website of the Special Representative uh, for Children and Armed Conflict. And even... Uh, the, the annual, there's an annual report by the UN Secretary General mm. on children and armed conflict. Mm. And there, you know, the issues are listed, the parties to the conflict and the recruits and those who are using children are also listed in the annexes. Mm. So it is all available 
as well as the, the time-bound action plan. Okay, so tomorrow then this, this exhibition opens. How long is it there for? It will be uh, open until the 19th of December. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, as I said, at Constitution Hill. We're very grateful to Constitution Hill for hosting this exhibit. Um, it has been shown at UN headquarters before and in other locations. And we feel that, you know, Constitution Hill is a very appropriate venue. It has seen many human rights abuses in the past and has been transformed with the Constitutional Court there and with its many uh, programs that focus on human rights. Uh, so we're very grateful that uh, we can show this exhibit at this important location. I'm told it has various themes, this exhibition. Are, yes. are you able to tell us about them? Yes, there are basically four major themes. Uh, one being the girl-child, because often we wouldn't associate girls or ch- uh, girl children with soldiers mm. and uh, uh, recruitment to armed forces. The second theme is reintegration, uh, then small arms and light weapons, and then the fight against impunity. And as I said, um, you know, it's very, very important, and the UN is, is supporting governments once they, you know, come out of conflict in reintegrating um, soldiers, not just children, but of course also child soldiers. It's a very, very important uh, aspect of our post-conflict work, uh, reintegration of former soldiers. And small arms and light weapons, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as I said, today weapons are so light that they can be used by a six, seven, eight-year-old mm. uh, child. Mm. Um, and of course, the fight against the impunity that children should never be used uh, in armed conflict. Do we know anything about the photographers? Uh, they, the the photographs were taken from uh, a book uh, by Leora Khan, who. Uh, is with an NGO, a New York NGO called uh, Proof, Media for Social Justice. Mm-hmm. And the photographers come from different countries. They um, are renowned photographers. Many, of course, have worked in conflict zones. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even a South African photographer, Guy Dillon, uh, oh, okay. who's also part of this book and of this uh, exhibit. Okay. Well, thank you for talking to us and thank you for your time. We we didn't have a very clear line, but I think you've given us the gist of what uh, the exhibition is about. And uh, we'll, we'll try and get as many people to go and see it. I wish it would travel around the country because it sounds it, like a very interesting exhibition. Yes, and it might. We are in discussion with some partners in, in Cape Town mm-hmm. and hopefully we will be able to, to also show it there. No, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Helene. Thank you very much and have a good afternoon. You too. The exhibition is called Children of War, Broken Childhood at the uh, Constitution Hill. It opens tomorrow until the 19th of December. It's, it's, it's apparently um, something to, 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 to go and, and, and witness. And, and, you know, let's familiarize ourselves with all the issues. It's everyone, some people found it compelling. And this is why it's being shown. So children of war, uh, broken childhood and uh, at Constitution Hill.